Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Here we go. You ready, Real? I'm ready to roll. Carrie Bennett on the writing. <laughs> I've only done this like 300 times. Carrie Bennett on the Rider Flex podcast. How you doing, Carrie? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good morning. And let's see, you're in Washington, right? I am. And it is the morning. Right. I appreciate you doing this, man. Thanks for getting this scheduled. I know you got a, you got a fascinating career. I, I, I you know, you, you've done several different things, which I think is interesting, right? Which has all led you into being a great operations executive and, and, and leader of people, uh, interesting career. Plus you've been in cannabis. So I want to talk about that, but, uh, before we get into the career, just a little bit about you personally, early on family, where you grew up, mom, dad, siblings, give us a little background if you don't mind. No, not a problem. Grew up in a small community called Appleby, Texas, uh, mm. population 444, I think is what the sign says probably still says the same. Uh, but it's in East Texas, right outside of Nacogdoches, which is the oldest town in Texas, ah, okay. about eight or nine miles out. And unbeknownst to me, growing up in that environment really shaped the direction of my life. Okay. Uh, so if I were to fast forward through that, when you grow up, um, I don't want to say that we were poor, but but let's let's lean the the, the arrow that direction. Okay. What you do have is an abundance of time as a child, an abundance of land, a bicycle, a shovel, and a dog. <laughs> and you just begin creating little tracks and little jumps. And of course, later I moved on to be a professional BMX racer. Wow. And when that was really happening, you know, you go back to like 97, 98, when X Games was coming online and, and BMX was really coming up. I noticed almost immediately that at the pro ranks, which by the way, I was good enough to turn pro, but not good enough to, to do anything with it. Uh, thank God it was pre <laughs> fourth one time, but I did get a lot of Puma shoes, which was really cool. But a lot of the, the racers or athletes were either upper echelon, uh, you know, from a wealth demographic perspective, Southern California, or they were these Texas, Oklahoma boys that gotcha. were poor, uh, so that that's where I was raised, man. And and um, your mom and dad, what they do? Mom was a, a receptionist at a OBGYN, and dad was in manufacturing. Okay. Uh, I have to say that I have the most amazing parents in the world, um, and I'm very fortunate and blessed uh, to be able to say that. But my dad's story is very unique. <clears throat> High school background, um, several tours in Vietnam. You wouldn't know it if if no one ever said it. But he was one of these natural mathematicians. So he went to work on a factory line, putting together air conditioners, and then ended up going to um, 
what is now Cooper Power Systems, but at the time it was McGraw Edison, and just started coming up through the executive ranks. Uh, now, granted, a lot of that happened after I had left home, but his ability for natural math, he was just throwing these formulas at them on the development of these massive electrical transformers. And the next thing you know, he's traveling you know, the world, going to all of these factories and implementing uh, process change, process management, all the way down to uh, design of the units itself. Mm. Very brilliant. man. And thankfully, I picked up some of those math traits, which it helps and it hurts. Uh, conversational wise, it, it sometimes messes with people when you just spit things out that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> are they, are they still alive? They are. They are. And they, they still live in the same town. Uh, they just transitioned to their hometown, which is West Texas. So yeah, my dad is, is regarded as iron Mike, uh, by his peers. He's, he's a hard man. Really? Really? West Texas. What town? West Texas. What we're at? I think they're making their way to Brady. Brady. Now, we're, we're, I don't know. What's that close to? Uh, if you can think of Austin on the map, go up halfway and then shoot over towards New Mexico, probably another hour and a half. So okay. cent- West Central. Okay. Okay. Very good. Any siblings or were you the only child? That's a little bit of a touchy topic, but hey, let's talk about it. I have an older sister uh, who was pretty much everything to me me growing up she was five years over me unfortunately um around the time that i was 18 or 19 there was a fallout uh some different circumstances happened and i i really haven't seen her since Mm. um but i do know that she's out in the world i do know that she married into wealth uh and is doing very well for herself and if that's good enough for me just knowing that my big sister's out there happy and and seemingly Mm. happy she does she doesn't she doesn't speak to the parents no she contacted me one time i was in hawaii it was thanksgiving day my cell phone rang it was a strange number i have no idea how she got it but she says hey carrie it's your sister and true to form i said have you apologized to mom and dad yet she says no and i'm like well i can't talk to you until you do you owe them an apology she's like you're too much of principles i'm like well if we don't have principles what else do we have Right. Interesting. Okay. Very good. All right. So one sister. Okay. So you're, you're doing this uh, BMX, right? You know, you're, 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 you love riding bikes. You're a BMX guy. You're doing that in high school. And then you tried to go pro and then you're like, Oh, I guess I better get my life together. And then you join the Marines. Is that, is that how it happened or walk me through it? Flip it, flip it. So I, I had a confidence problem. I'd won the state championship twice by the time I was a freshman, which in Texas is a tremendous deal. It's a very Mm. big BMX state. Uh, But I just felt physically I I lacked confidence. Intellectually, I was, you know, the honor roll and math award and all that good fun stuff. So I had an opportunity to go to University of Oklahoma on a scholarship. Ah. And it was my senior year. I was one of the kids that was younger for my age. Okay. Uh, So my dad... And I went up to OU for an orientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, I was going to be the first, first one in my family to, you know, pursue an education and do things of that nature. Cool. And I got there and I didn't realize it at the time, but I realized it very quickly. I felt so intimidated. All of these college students looked like they had their shit together. <clears throat> they looked, <laughs> everything about them intimidated me. Mm. I was very quiet on the drive home, couldn't describe to my dad what I was feeling. 
And I made a decision, um, which was very interesting. I suddenly went into my Marine Corps recruiter's office in my little town of Nacogdoches, Texas. And I said, what is, what's the hardest thing that you guys have? Like, I understand that being a Marine means you're, you're the upper echelon, but within those ranks, how do you take it even further? And he said, machine gunner, shortest life expectancy in the Marine Corps. And I said, sign me up, man. <laughs> he says, well, I can't. One, you're not of age. Uh, you would need parental consent. And two, you're a scholarship kid. And the way that works is we're not supposed to, to interact with you. You know, we're not supposed to recruit you. Interesting. Uh, now they could, you know, for officer ranks, right? Uh, I see. But I, I, I didn't want that. I wanted, I wanted to put myself in a situation that if I could survive it for the rest of my life, I would never question okay amongst my peers i like it all right i went and told my parents uh let's not do this full scholarship to ou uh on math let's instead let's go to the marine corps and be a machine gunner and my father and my mother both were like no we didn't raise you just to see you go off and no mm -hmm. uh but true to form they said if this is what you want to do you have to sign yourself up we're not co-signing on this we can't live okay. with something okay. happening so I graduated high school um, and then turned 18 shortly thereafter, went down, signed up and shipped out about, I think I had to wait six or eight weeks to ship out. Mm. Interesting story. How long were you in? <laughs> I ended up doing about three. So when I went in, uh, I did have the path to uh, what's called 0331 machine gunner. Okay. And of course the Marine Corps, as much as I tried to hide certain intellectual skills because i really wanted this was back when you were in boot camp and someone next to you the judge told them you're either going to prison or going to the infantry this, <laughs> that was happening right so i'm trying to be uh I'm trying to be real you know with my people and and hide some of the things that i think and sure enough they they sniff it out and um i ended up becoming part of a group uh we held a high high level security clearance and we're responsible for the protection of uh, ICBM nuclear missiles. Um, so it was, you know, a lot of domestic terrorism, anti-terrorism, close quarter battle, uh, security forces. Okay. Okay. We, we worked directly with Lockheed. And um, when you got out of the service, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you have a plan? None. <laughs> none at all. I, I, I Got out. I did my thing. Everything went well. I received a lot of honors. Every promotion was meritorious. Uh, Navy Achievement Medal. Uh, I did very, very well. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I had a, a pretty bad foot injury. And the way that they work is they don't give you six months to figure it out. So they're like, either we kick. When you get injured, you lose your clearance. Uh, so they're either, hey, you either heal over here and then we'll see when you come back or, or just jet. So I said, let's just go ahead and jet. I've done it. Everything I've aimed to do. Did they and, offer it? Uh, were you in long enough though to get the GI Bill and pay for college? No, man. Back then, the Marine Corps didn't—they didn't offer you any incentive uh, oh. to come. Mm. It's not like it is now. You know, now they're okay. like, oh, whatever. Then their advertisement is all of that. Back then, it was it, it, and it still is the few, the proud, the Marines. Okay, gotcha. All right, so so you exit out. Then what? You, are, you go back home, and you're like, okay, what do I do with my life now? What do I do with my life now? I started changing oil at an oil change place. And 
I, I just, I wanted to get under a car and just be a mechanic. It was something I could do to where I could, I could think without a lot of distraction. All right. It was my next step, you know, and uh, ate one or two mini pizzas and got that little bit of the little chub, you know, on your, on your stomach. And I'm like, well, that's not good. So I went and got a bike and just started riding a bike again, but very casually street style. Okay. And next thing you know, um, I'm at a track and everything is still there. They say, you know, you never forget how to ride a bike. It was all right there. Cool. So uh, this was in Nacogdoches where Stephen F. Austin University is. There was a, a college student who was working with the Dallas Cowboys to be a physical trainer. Uh, fate we ran into one another and uh he learned what i was thinking and said man let's put a program together and go for this uh he'll use it as his curriculum and i get to benefit physically so he wrote up a nutrition and a training uh, schedule for me and then away we went man started racing how about that wow okay and how old were you then probably were you uh what 21 20 yeah yeah okay. 21 i had already right. did enough uh wins and uh, accomplishments to earn the pro license so that wasn't uh anything i had to worry about i just had to submit the app now and, uh, did, were you in any relationships at this time or you're just having now now you're you're a racer you're 21 you're just having fun with the, all the chicks are around the track and you're, you're a different girlfriend every weekend or what, what's the deal no man complete opposite uh true true story i had a, i had a, i created a child at 19 had a child at 20 and the reason that is so funny is, oh man, in 2010, I had just moved. So I'm fast forwarding, but I'm, I'm tying it in. 2009, I was living in Hawaii and I came back to Texas to visit a friend in Austin. Mm. And he said, you're not going to believe what I found. And he held up a picture and it was at the X Games, uh, like warmups in, I think, Oceanside, California or something like that. And you, you've seen the big ramps, right? The big uh -huh. half pipes mm -hmm. on top of the deck. You see the riders up on the deck. And it's a picture from the ground. And this is pre-digital camera technology, right? So it's like Polaroid style. Okay. But I knew that was me on the deck because I always rode a completely blacked out bike. Every part on my bike was always black. Okay. That angst, right? Uh, <laughs> but I'm smiling really big and I'm looking and the other riders are all smiling and looking. And there's my then three and a half year old son with his pants down on his ankles, taking a leak off the top of the deck. <laughs> so no, he went everywhere that I went and that ended up subsequently being the, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me uh, was, was raising him because it made me always put myself into a situation that he was welcome in. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. So no ma no, you weren't married at the time. Didn't stay in a relationship. We tried really, really neat woman. We tried, but it was okay. It, yeah. Okay. Okay. So you had custody of your kid though. Full-time you, you raised your son. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very good. How old's your son now? 25. Do you have any other kids? I got married six years ago and I have a stepdaughter and a stepson uh, through the marriage. And how okay. much fun is that? Well, how old are they? The stepkids? 15 year old girl and a 12 year old young man. Woo. Well, first of all, being a step parent is a tough job by itself. Add into the fact that they're teenagers. That's, that's, that's not an easy job, my friend. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I'm blessed. Uh, the, the young man that, that I have now, I've never seen a heart on a, a young man this way. It's, it's incredible.
It's, it, right. it inspires me. There's times where I'm teaching lessons as a parent and you're right. Step parenting is not the same as when it's your biological child. Right. But I also find myself learning lessons from him uh, huh. on my heart, heart side of things. Just his compassion is, is it's untethered and, and unimaginable. Any grandchildren from your 25 year old? No. No. <laughs> Where's your 25 year old son? Is he near you? Is he in Washington? No, you know, so he was, he was raised in Hawaii. We were, I, by the time he knew what was going on, we moved to Hawaii when, uh, when he was five. Rural Hawaii on big Island. And he was an Island kid, man. And, um, by the time he was in high school, I had accepted a role to, I was in hospitality at the time to run a resort in Louisiana. So here we go. And he's moving all over the country with me doing whatever it is I'm doing. And when he graduated high school, I was so confident that he was just going to go back to Hawaii, go surf, jump in the hospitality industry, do very well for himself. He's, he's, he's got all, he's got the look, you know, for the hospitality industry, but that punk, he, uh, he says, dad, I'm going to the Marine Corps. And I said, to hell you are. Same thing my parents <laughs> said. I have not done I mean, I remember Christmases uh, where I had $12 in my account, you know, it was yeah. hard uh, being a parent and, and trying to build your career um, at that time, especially, but he is in the air force in a security forces joint unit. So now the military, apparently they, we used to be very segregated, right? And now they, they create these units where there's members of different um, branches, Okay. So he's doing, he's along the lines of what I was doing. And, uh, which is just strange because I never, I never had the, the accolades and the awards on the wall. I wasn't a military household. So why yeah. he chose to go that direction, I still don't know, but he did it and he's doing very well. He's, uh, almost six years in. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's great. Congratulations on that. Tell him, thank, thank you for his service and thank you for yours. Thank so, you. so you, so you start moving through your career. Um, let's fast forward a little bit here. Um, I, I guess what I'd like to know is how in the hell did you go from hospitality to banking into cannabis? Just uh, how did that happen? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I've, I've always found myself slightly envious of my peers that knew what they wanted to do. I wanted, uh, I want to be a physician or an attorney or just whatever it is. They, they knew mm -hmm. because I never knew. I really didn't uh, with the exception of wanting to be a professional BMX athlete. I didn't really know. And even wanting to be an athlete, you also know that you have a very short shelf life, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you're 27 as a, a, a pro racer, you're old. Um, so <clears throat> When I graduated university with a bachelor's in finance, I was almost immediately recruited to a role in Hawaii. And the story of getting that role is pretty much unbelievable. Uh, I literally got offered the role because unbeknownst to me, I pushed open a bathroom door and hit the owner on the other side. <laughs> and it was how I apologized for that and then and also uh so very long story short I'm, I'm in east texas and this is the internet's just coming online and i get this email and it's from a guy and, and he's one of the guys that have been in the windmill farms in southern california and he says can you fly to boulder 
Colorado and come meet with me. I'm interviewing for a role in Hawaii and he's doing interviews in Asia, a set in Europe and a set in the Americas. Can you come? And I'm yes. like, man, Hawaii is not. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, but at the time you're, you're still poor, you know, you're still ramen noodle soup. You don't have this money uh, for all of this. So <clears throat> I'll be honest with you. I drank a little bit too much wine. Uh, uh, the evening prior, uh, I had had a pretty horrific injury and had uh, 18 staples in my stomach that I was a, about a week out of surgery, um, a, 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 an accident, a bike wreck. Yep. I had a lot of, uh, lot, lot of injuries, right? A lot of those, <laughs> those guys, are, they're pretty beaten up, but I said to heck with it. I'm booking this trip. I got in the car, I drove to Houston, got on a plane. And when I was, uh, I, I hate saying this because I realize now that maybe I was probably a little intoxicated, uh, uh, not bad, but more than I would recommend. But I'm on the plane and that's when it hit. What have I done? I have taken my last $300, bought this ticket. I'm dressed like crap. Okay. <laughs> I'm not wearing a suit, man. I'm wearing like, it's horrible. It, it, Steve, it's horrible. <laughs> but reality is coming to me. And then sure enough, I, the plane lands and someone's holding the sign. Here's the shuttle to this hotel in boulder and um i think it was in boulder yes and i get there and i walk into the lobby i think our internet just dropped did it no i'm still with you oh okay oh, cool yeah i can hear you okay cool i can hear you too yeah yeah so keep going. i'm gonna let me let me make a note of that right there uh try to clip that out all right so let me let me do this so you walk into this hotel in Boulder. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I walk in the lobby and here are all of these candidates. And man, they had their shit together. <laughs> you know, they were they were their posture, you know, it was That's real good. Funny. And they had their, their briefcases and they're dressed. And I'm going, oh, Carrie, it's like three hours until your flight back. And this is horrible. So I go to the bathroom, you know, the door swing. And I went, I just, I pushed the door aggressively and hit this elder man on the other side with it. And I looked at him, I said, sir, I'm so terribly sorry. I'm in a bad mental space right now. And I'm normally not that aggressive. And are you okay? What can I do? And it didn't occur to me that he's wearing an Aloha shirt and flip-flops. And he's doing his head like that. And he's kind of giving me a hard time. And he says, are you here for an interview? And I go, yes, sir. He goes, follow me. And we walked through the lobby, past all of the candidates to the restaurant that wasn't open yet. He had a booth in there where he was conducting interviews. Okay. And he sits down and he says, have a seat. And I go, I can't. He goes, why not? And I said, eh, I'll show you. And I lifted my shirt up and I've got all these staples and it's oh. snapping, a little goop coming out. And he goes, what are you doing? Man, I drank a little bit too much wine. <laughs> I booked the ticket. I'm here. I'm not dressed for it. I can't sit down. This is a horrible mistake, and I'm so sorry. And he said, uh, are you always this honest? And I said, yes, sir. And he says, you're my man. Let's go. Wow. 
Wow. Wow. That's a good story. <laughs> that, that's how I got into hospitality. <laughs> All right. How about that? Uh, and he, what did he own? Some resorts or hotels? Or what was the deal? So at this point he was retired. Uh, he was living in Fiji and uh, that that's his spot. But every time they had uh, like a, a military coup, which by the way, they're such a friendly culture. Right. And and they nationalize assets. So it's not like they're their military coup, or at least at that time there was any bloodshed or, or, or drama, but they would nationalize assets. So he would pull his assets and go to his second home in Hawaii okay. and redistribute the assets. I see. So this guy was, was pretty opposed to like the stocks, you know, trading type markets. He was more, he wanted to touch. So you think uh, the Koa tree forestation in Hawaii, right? Or... Mm restaurants, activity businesses, art galleries. Okay. Uh, he had quite a portfolio. And he said, the first thing I want you to do is build a downhill mountain bike trail uh, from the top of the volcano all the way down. What do you need? And I'm like a four by four van, a motocross bike, six months and a lot of water. And he's like, go for it. Uh, and in that six months in the evening, he would test me on finance stuff. Cause you know, my bachelor's was in finance. Very cool. And so when that trail got finished and we opened that activity, he says, I just bought a new boat. I'm retiring. You're the CFO and the COO go for it. Wow. <laughs> 25, <laughs> 25 years old. <laughs> oh, pretty cool. All right. How big was that? How much volume were you managing? You remember revenue? Oh gosh. It was, it was over 20 and less than 30 from okay. a revenue perspective, from an asset perspective, probably closer to about 65 because okay. a lot of the holdings were in like co forestation or land rights. So mm. major assets, but they're not revenue producers. They're just very okay. safe places. Yeah. Very safe places to, to uh, hold funds. Okay. How the heck did you, all right. So that was a nice run there. Cause you were there for like eight years. Then you spent a couple of years at, at Cypress bend resort, but how did you get into banking? Oh my gosh. <clears throat> so I, I, in the course of hospitality, I was pretty good at it and was learning quite a bit about leadership. We sold some businesses in Hawaii. One of the guys that bought was a retiring SVP of uh, international marketing at Disney part of the sale was that I had to stay with him for 90 days to help him transition to the Island. Right. Cause okay. it's a different okay. world than LA. Um, and in that 90 days, he and I developed a friendship. I subsequently went on to be the best man at his wedding. So I, I didn't go to Fiji. I stayed in Hawaii. I see. And now we're working with resorts, doing a lot of consultation for like the real boutique resorts, right? The, the Monica mm. and, and these non-franchised uh, flag resorts. And an opportunity came up to go uh, to a resort in Louisiana and possibly become the youngest resort general manager in the nation. And in my mind, hey, there's a goal that is admirable, uh, that I, it's achievable. So let's try to do that. And so I did. And I, I accomplished the goal, had quite a bit of fun. It was a 600 acre resort, golf course, conference center, okay. uh, you know, on a lake. So it's like a lake based golf resort on the Audubon golf trail. And by the way, golf resort owners don't hire golfers to be the GM because uh, they don't want you on the course all day. I see. 
and your facilities people are always asking for new greens they want the gm to be like no we're not putting 50 grand on 18 holes just because you saw one brown spot your turn <laughs> i fix it you know <laughs> at the time I, I didn't i thought i was just that great you know but really they were bringing me in because i had this head space that allowed me to get an organization to where they wanted to go, but through a non-traditional path by asking non-traditional questions through having mm -hmm. non-traditional qualifications, right? They had experts and consultants there if I was wrong, but if I was right, there was a bigger payoff. Mm -hmm. I'm doing that and I'll never forget, I'm, I'm going to reenact, right? Here's my phone. My phone rings and I'm like, hello, is this Carrie Bennett? And I said, yeah, it is. Well, this is so-and-so from Bank of America. Um, I'm a recruiter. And I'd like to talk to you about joining banking. <sighs> well, how did you get my number and why am I on the list? <laughs> I said, listen, I have a very unique name, but I think you've got the wrong carry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in hospitality. And so, Steve, what was happening... Um, you know, if you recall the financial crisis of 08, 09, mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of impacts. So previous to the 08, 09 crisis, the, the previous negative impact to the financial industry was the, you know, the 99.00 that resulted in Sarbanes-Oxley. But really, that's public trading. As a consumer, how much do you and I really care about that? You know, all these Wall Street mm -hmm. crooks. Excuse me. So SOX was the most profound piece of legislation since the Great Depression. So as a finance guy, I'm aware of it, but I'm really more of an operational guy mm -hmm. with financial acumen. And yep. so I hadn't really put the pieces together yet of the impact of 0809, but there was a retail banking impact. So several things were happening is uh, the rule sets were changing. Uh, the greatest example I can provide to you is you go to a church and uh, you mow lawn, you mow lawns for a living, and someone writes you a check. To mm -hmm. You go to your church and you just sign that over to them. That's now a third party check, right? Okay. At that time, banks were moving away from third party checks. So that's just one small example of a retail transaction that now banks across the board are pulling back from mm. and they're struggling to have the narrative, the dialogue with customers on this is why, and here's how to do it differently in the future. Okay. So I think that was probably one of the worst examples I could give as far as uh, that doesn't seem like that's big of an impact, but it really is. Because banking is a very legacy, old, hundreds of years right. old industry. Right. And suddenly, now as a customer, you're being told that something you've always been able to do, whatever that was, you can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. People were getting upset. Mm -hmm. They were changing banks rapidly. And at the same time, here come the fintechs. Yeah. Or then... Yep. Banks only ever competed with banks. They competed on location, staffing, rates, but more often than not, they were more similar than dissimilar. They struggled on the customer experience side of things. So mm -hmm. the banks now began recruiting people like me from the hospitality industry. I see. To come in and to, to teach them customer experience. 
Gotcha. That's where, that's how it happened. Okay. Better person to learn from than a, you know, a resort guy. Right. (laughs) Uh, Uh, And you were in banking for quite a while too. You had a nice run there. I mean, it wasn't like this was a short gig. You were in banking for, for gosh, what, eight, nine, 10 years, something like that. Yeah. So you move into, or so so you spent 10 years in banking. Where did the cannabis, did, did you, did you, have you always been a cannabis guy? Were you a consumer later in life? I'm guessing you were a consumer when you were a young kid. I don't know, maybe not, but were you a consumer? Did you have a goal to get in cannabis? How did it happen? Walk okay. through it. Great story. Great stories. Uh, I was not a cannabis guy growing up as a pro athlete and, and destined for the Marine Corps and, and rural East Texas. You know, no, man, uh, no drinking, no smoking, no nothing. Very focused. Okay. Even if I wanted to, the, the money wasn't there for it. And, and I didn't have the connections. Okay. But after the Marine Corps, uh, when I was hanging around some, some pro BMX racers, uh, there were some different events that happened in the Marines, you know, and, and you keep them to yourself, but you're struggling with some, some mental challenges. And it translated to me to uh, insomnia. Okay. And it was a fellow professional BMX racer uh, that turned me on to cannabis. Um, at a national of all places and um i'm out in the parking lot just riding a bike around at 11 o'clock because i can't sleep and he's over there with this big cloud around him (laughs) and i just shake my head and i'm like what are you doing with your life and blah you know i went down my (laughs) and he was a very intelligent person and he was very uh he was able to articulate very well why he was doing what he was doing and it wasn't recreational it was medicinal he had some challenges as well and subsequently i i gave it a, a try and oh my gosh i can sleep mm. yep then now, you're hooked now, now I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm hooked i'm a weed guy um so that's 25 years old and then of course in hawaii you know it's not hard to find a phenomenal <laughs> cannabis I've had cannabis every day of my life since I'm 25 years old. Gotcha. Okay. So when you're in banking, when, I mean, when, I, the, when the cannabis industry started taking off, were you thinking, oh, man, I'd like to get into that? Was that a goal? Before then, I mean, so I, I've smoked cannabis uh, for quite a long time. I've grown illegally uh, yeah. in every state that I've lived in. I never took one to fruition because you're always waiting on the cops to beat down your door. <laughs> One stupid little plant that just looks horrible. And you're like, you know, Texas, that's real, man. You're going to jail for a minute. Uh, <laughs> so I always knew that it was inevitable because I was in the space. I was part of the culture. Uh, I was, my peers were, were growers. I sought out almost immediately in cannabis. I realized that there was a, a great disparity in quality. Mm-hmm. And if you could find someone with a home grow, you are going to get a very natural organic product, hopefully, uh, versus, you know, maybe what was coming across borders, that real brick style, dirty headache weed, they called it. So I had no appeal to cannabis if it was a poor product. I, okay. only, I only wanted it if it was a high-end product. Okay. So at 26 years old, I'm chasing that and forging relationships that get me access to that, hey, Steve's a grower, he doesn't have enough to, to share, but he's got enough to, to get you set up. You know what I mean? Okay. I mean, yep. Um, so even, you know, in banking, I'm the guy in a suit with, with the, 
that you know, my initials are KB and, and the people that knew me said that that stands for kind bud because they knew I was the guy that always had the good stuff. So. <laughs> I can almost visualize, I can almost visualize you and a couple of the VPs are like, Hey man, let's go to lunch. And you come back from lunch. You try to have a meeting in the conference room. <laughs> no comment, man. No comment. <laughs> uh, what was going on. And I never hit it either. And one of the things, so if you can imagine I'm in a suit and you and I are meeting and I'll see, but you know, Hey, you see that popping out right there? <laughs> a little non-traditional, but I was always the guy that was fully, you know, inked uh, out. Gotcha. In the suit, uh, which really actually helped me be that much more successful in banking because banking is all about relationship building. Mm -hmm. Fundamental. Yep. And your, your clients, you don't know if they have a pallet factory or uh, they're developing software. And, and if you're in retail banking, you have to fundamentally get to know every nuance of their business, mm -hmm. assess risk, determine what the relationship's like before you consider lending or, or any of these, you know, different deposit or, or credit products. So it's, the neat thing about banking is if you're, if you allow it to, you become an expert in so many types of businesses, mm -hmm. crash course style. Right, right. You know, you're out at the factory. You're with the CEO at the factory learning every challenge. And then you're on the factory floor. And you're trying to understand what do these employees need that they're not getting? What does the organization, the, the, the corporate side need that they're not getting? How can we create and bundle products and services, whether it's a bank at work, right? Mm -hmm. uh, every Friday, we're sending a banker there for two hours direct deposit because the, the corporate change banks, right? So now everyone has to have a new direct deposit form, man, the stories go on and on, but, uh, here comes legal cannabis, right? Yep. And they don't have access to traditional financial services. And of course you're running in those circles and those guys know you're in banking. They're like, damn, man, what's, what's I need like, what's, what's going on? When can I open a bank? You guys are talking about this stuff. Yep. For sure. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, you know, back then, if you're in the cannabis world, you're living with stacks of twenties, which is a yep. real pain in the ass. I can mm -hmm. assure you, you know, mm -hmm. your hurts. <laughs> yep. Try to do payroll on twenties hurts. Excuse me. <laughs> but in uh, 18, so in 2018, before then credit unions were starting to bank cannabis. That's right. On the deposit side of the coin. No one's offering uh, credit products, right? Okay. And that's primarily because of bankruptcy laws and, and cannabis, you know, federally illegal. If you default, the lender has no recourse. I see. So that's really what keeps, uh, you know, that side. But uh, the FDIC, I don't know if I should say this or not, but they very quietly indicated to some banks because of your risk profile, because of how you are running your bank, we're not going to be hurt if you begin banking cannabis, but you're going to have to use tools to prove to us that you've assessed the risk to minimize it. So mm. if you're a bank and if you and I both have a bank, maybe I specialize in banking casinos or, okay. or All right sell lottery tickets, right? So those are money service businesses. I have a whole different department in my back office, a whole different sets of software that helps me assess that risk. Mm. Right? Uh, so I was familiar with MSB banking 
and subsequently got asked by a, a bank, a publicly traded bank, hey, can you go out in the landscape and do some risk profiles on the, the producer processor side of it and the retailer side of it? So Beautiful. now, yep. now I'm getting access to owners and operators um, and finding out what their pain points are. You know, mm -hmm. what do they need mm -hmm. that maybe we could afford yeah. to I see where this is going. I see where this is going. <laughs> and then, uh, so then I started just doing consulting. I got out of banking. Uh, it occurred to me, man, I never thought I, I don't know anyone that growing up said, I want to be a banker. How did I? <laughs> so it was at a, I was at a crossroads because I had a bank CEO, um, a great, great gentleman. We're still very good friends. But we're having dinner one night and he said, uh, I want you to think about being a bank CEO. Uh, I really think that, that that's your destiny. And in that conversation, that's when I had that aha moment. If I don't get out now, that's going to be my story. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with it, yeah. Nothing at all, at all. A tremendous honor, tremendous honor. Some of my favorite people are bank CEOs. Um, but I realized that's not my path. Um, and so I started just doing some consulting and had a lot of fun, uh, assessed the value of a baseball team, you know, random, really random things, uh, were coming at me and I enjoyed all of it. And then in the process, um, a cannabis company that I had a lot of admiration for, uh, you, I was, yeah, yeah. You hadn't, you knew them or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'd spoken with them and then subsequently I reached out. And uh, hey guys, uh, I'm bored a little bit. I'm doing this. Let me know if you've got some some part time. Just let me come in and trim or something, just to get my my head in and and more of that space versus this this consulting high level consulting space. Okay. And then they were like, "Whoa, hold on, you're available." Uh, and I, I said, "Well, I hadn't really considered that. Maybe I can be." And then we spoke, and I learned where they were at and where they were wanting to go, and we determined that there was a great fitment. Uh, with what I have accomplished in my skill set, and here we are, man. And now you're president of Canna Organics in Washington. Yes. Okay. How big? I don't know how much you can share. Probably can't share revenue. I know it's a private company, but uh, how about employees? Maybe can you give us a general size? Uh, as of Monday morning, as of tomorrow morning, I have 48 FTE. Okay. All right. Very good. How many acres is it? Indoor, outdoor? How many acres is it? Is it, it is can is canna are they just uh do they just produce do they are they wholesale retail give us a quick overview yeah for sure so every state is different uh, from a regulatory authority uh, or a rule set perspective and in Washington State we don't we're not allowed to to vertically vertically integrate okay so we're not allowed to grow it and to sell it at a retail facility right so if 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 this is your coin your rule set you have to be on one side or the other okay we're on the producer processor side. So we are from the seed uh, all the way to the store. So in other words, I've got people in the nursery uh, working with the genetics and breeding and doing those things mm -hmm. all the way to the delivery team out across the state, you know, putting the products in the stores. Okay. So you've got your manufacturing side of it, your packaging side of it, you know, your marketing, you know, the full, the full thing. But in the cannabis industry, from a grower perspective, mostly growers are either indoor or outdoor. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's benefits and pros and cons of each. We are unique. We're what's called sun-grown indoor, which means we're in 
greenhouses, sun-grown, but because of how we structure our greenhouses, we're able to bring in some of the climate control mechanisms and those benefits that you get from an indoor grow. I see. Interesting. It is. So in the cannabis world, especially if you're just talking flower, right? There is a tremendous difference with uh, the terpene production, the oil production of the plant when the sun touches it versus artificial lighting. Okay. Uh, our company, we are known as flavor chasers. We're not chasing high THC percentages or any of that. I'll just say it. What I think is, is pretty silly and it's not going to last that long. You know, I can, I won't start on that. I'll, I'll get too passionate. Uh, <laughs> one of the down, it's one of the things about the industry I don't like right now is that coming out of the gate, the, the narrative at the store is what's the THC percentage, uh, percentage, mm. you know, what's the THC mm. percentage. Man, I'm a wine guy. I don't buy wine based on alcohol percentage. I, ba- I buy it based on the taste. You know, mm-hmm. how does mm-hmm. it taste? So we're flavor chasers. Okay. Uh, and have done very well. We've, you know, taken all the dope cups, the sun cups, the cannabis cups, which are the major awards uh, that recognize the highest quality flower in the industry. But we're very niche. We have a diehard cult-like following. Okay. Um, but sun-grown indoor grower is very, very difficult. Uh, you can't just throw a grower into this situation mm. and experience mm. success. Mm. Mm. Okay, very good. Thank you for that overview. Uh, let me ask you, uh, we've got a little bit of time left here. You've seen a lot now in cannabis already, right? Because you've been around the culture for a long time, but now you've actually run an operation for, what, almost three years or so. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to an executive that is coming from Nike or Coca-Cola or Chevron or whatever that thinks, man, I want to get into cannabis. I want to be a cannabis executive. Yeah. yeah, uh, but, yeah. You know, what, what advice would you give to them? My first piece of advice would actually be asking them a question, which would be why. Yeah, um, they think and their, their answer probably is because oh, it's because it's cool and it's sexy and it's up and coming and it's a exploding industry. You know, that's what they all say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Several years ago, do you remember the memes uh, that were out and they were uh, like a four square and it's what I do, what my parents think I do, what society thinks I do. Do you remember those? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you're out in the world right now and you're shopping at your grocery store and you look at uh, Time magazine or whatever the magazines are right by the checkout and they've got a green cannabis leaf with all these dollar signs, right? There's just the, the general public feels that there's a lot of money in cannabis. And let's be real, there is, but no one's really making money. Right. It goes through the industry, a lot of cash mm-hmm. flow, but the margin. Mm-hmm. So the joke is, take that meme, the four square meme, and I know what I do, but for my non-cannabis people, in their mind, I come to work and climb up this giant mound of cash <laughs> And just sit on it and just point and, and tell people what to do. And um, so there's a lot of misconceptions. You know, we could just, we could be growing corn right now. We don't get the, the tax benefits. We have to run under 280E. We don't get traditional cost of goods sold. I mean, the tax rates are unprecedented. The regulations aren't at a banking level, but they're incredibly heightened mm-hmm. uh, compared to traditional packaged goods or other industries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, why? Yeah. Why in the world do you want to do this? <laughs> but here's the thing, Steve. If you have a reason, 
So I, one of my best employees doesn't smoke cannabis whatsoever, but they're passionate about it because of how it has positively affected a family member that they care about. Right. Yep. So I think you have to step to the table with some type. Well, you don't have to, but I think that you're at an advantage if you have an inherent passion for the plant. And I tell you why a lot of the execs that I know that want to inquire, they need to understand, unless you're talking retail, if you're on my side of the coin, you're talking about working with the living thing. Mm. That's right. doesn't matter if you're into horses or, or people that I know in Hawaii that work with dolphins, right? Or you're working with a living thing. So right now, uh, you said, Nike, you wake up and you have a cold or you don't feel well, I'm good. In our industry, work from home is not an option. That plant wants what it wants when it wants it or needs it. And if your phone goes off at two in the morning because your power went out because someone hit a telephone, you know, an electric pole, mm-hmm. and all of your systems are down, and you're one week away from harvest, you are so susceptible to powdery mildew, to mold, to things that can annihilate your entire crop, just mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So the, the pressure is real. Yep. real. The hours are long and you don't go too far from the farm. You know what I mean? You see a lot of people try to enter the industry coming from traditional uh, uh, industries and they, they flame out pretty fast. Huh? Lots of turnover. Absolutely. <laughs> they get in, uh, they the, get in and they're like, Oh man, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> the, the money isn't there uh, from an executive level. Comparatively speaking, it's not there. It's not the same, mm-hmm. you know, for the most mm-hmm. part, you are taking a pay cut. Uh, you're not seeing the, the traditional type of equity uh, opportunities. And it comes down to the state, right. Saying uh, we, you know, in Washington, you can't have out of state owners. So let me ask you this. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, do you think, I mean, fast forward, let's fast forward to um, cannabis being legal across the country, right? It'll, the Fed, the feds lift it. Let's, let's pretend like that happens in the next five, 10 years, whatever. Yep. What happens then? Do we have, do all these mom and pops like Canna Organics, do they go out of business and giant pharmaceutical companies or beverage companies they jump in, they have massive farms, massive, uh, you know, production facilities and Philip Morris or whoever, yeah. and just wipe out all the small guys. What happens? You think? Tremendous amount of speculation on that question. It's one of my favorite ones. Uh, I think that what it, I, I, you know, a lot of people in the industry, the, the legacy players, that's what they're waiting for, right? That's the cash out. Well, they think it is. <laughs> they think it is. And, and I disagree wholeheartedly, right? They don't need my greenhouse. They don't need my life. Yeah, right, right. I don't think, I don't think Philip Morris needs can of organics. No offense. No. Right? <laughs> but, but, but here's, here's what they do need. That as an example, the reason that I was so excited about this group and the reason I hitched my wagon to their horse yeah. is because what they do bring to the table are the genetics. I see. And okay. in the cannabis world, genetics is it and a lot of growers are growers but we are breeders mm. so look at uh like this last year we launched glue lotto rain shadow runts and orange uh, zots mm. which mm. several years and mm-hmm. they're all high awards right so if you have the genetics and a brand a brand hotel right you run the franchise flag up i see 
then you are very well positioned for legalization. Mm. Okay, so Philip Morris uh, opens up facilities. They they become a mass uh, producer of cannabis, but they buy uh, you know Blue Moon and a bunch of other uh, you know uh, smaller brands, and and you guys and that's how these guys end up making a lot of money. Hopefully, hopefully. Uh, what I, and how about the stocks? I mean, I you know I've seen all kinds of craziness in the Canadian stocks, especially where. These companies, they, they go public. They stay on the penny stock market. They never really do anything. Mm-hmm. Any, any thoughts there? Not to, I don't want you to give stock advice, but. Uh, I, I typically stay away from them and, and recommend such. A lot of the candidates, there's a saying in the industry that a farm fails every week. <laughs> okay. Uh, and that's, that's true, fundamentally. And I think a lot of them make the same exact mistake. They come in incredibly overcapitalized. Right. Um, and they don't have the, the knowledge and the expertise. Um, they're just thinking, hey, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> what they don't realize is that the cannabis, the legal cannabis industry, we're in our infancy. So Colorado, right, or Washington, they go legal. Everyone rushes to the store and it's novelty. They don't know the differences. Hey, let's just get weed, right? But then seven years later, now you're a more intelligent consumer and you know what to look for and why. So you know what what pesticides do they use and when and why because you're investing this so you start becoming a a more intelligent buyer and all of a sudden a steve or a carry we know nothing about cannabis but we're well capitalized let's start a farm we're not going to make it right we're just not uh in the grand scheme of things we're going to fail pretty quickly and and now i'm going to come behind us and buy our assets for pennies on the dollar and put a real (laughs) genetics in there so like for us, we're not allowed out of state uh, franchising. So what we can do is just consume other people's assets and do joint licensing. I see. Okay. Very good. Yeah, every, time, every time I meet a guy on the street or whatever, a friend says, yeah, I'm gonna start my own CBD brand. I'm like, okay, bro. Uh, good luck. <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, CBD is really cool, man. It really is. If you can brand it the right way, there's some that uh, focus just on athletes and mm-hmm. really well, right? Uh, but then, unfortunately, you see it in the convenience stores and yeah, just it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Everywhere. It's, every, it's everywhere. It's way oversaturated already. Okay, I know we're almost out of time. I just want to ask you a couple more questions. So what's in it for Carrie here going forward? Does Carrie want to be the CEO eventually of, I mean, I, you know, the executives from Canna Organics probably listening to this show, so I don't want you to commit to anything, but I mean, do you want to be a CEO of a billion dollar cannabis company someday? Like what's, what's the plan for Carrie? Yeah. Why not? Uh, I say, why not? Because I'm not intrinsically motivated by money, but my, my true motivation and what helps me sleep better at night is uh, benefits that I'm able to reap through servant leadership. Over the course of my career, the greatest success stories I have is when my phone rings from an employee that I worked with five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that says how you led and what you did to my life mm. uh, has changed the entire uh, entire trajectory of my life. Mm. And I want to say thank you. So I don't see myself getting away from being an operator uh, at all because I really love the access to the people and the more uh, you give me, I'm convinced that I can beat your business, all things equal. I can beat your business through servant leadership. Mm, I like that. Yeah. I like that. You still could jump on your bike from time to time? No. 
No, it's done. It's retired. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> I tried it, man. I, I, I really did. I started uh, writing again and I just can't do what I used to do. And I got bored. So people are like, I hit a big jump and they're like, that's amazing. But in my mind, I can't backflip anymore. I see. So, okay. Do you, you got some trophies and medals up in an attic somewhere? Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, man. I was poor enough that when I won those trophies, I had to sell them back to the trophy shop uh, to get food. Really? Wow. Oh, oh man. yeah. Yeah, man. I, I lived on uh, what I call Legionnaire, which is leaves and air. <laughs> quite a long time i was ready for anyone's dinner invite but <laughs> uh, me, i would say the future for me is either being uh the you know executive at an organization or uh being someone that's helping quite a few organizations but it's going to be one of those two uh, if you could if you could call your 18 year old 17 year old self if you could call your 17 year old self before he signed up for the marines and tell him anything today based on what you've learned what would that be believe in yourself more than what you do because you weren't you weren't as confident maybe as you could have been back then i'm still not i'm gotcha. still not well that means you're humble though that means you're humble which i which is a good which is a good trait so it, it is but i think it, it i do think it can be self-defeating at some point you know at some point you have to give yourself that credit and i've always struggled i have to try to put a victory on the board every day to sleep good at night i just trophies collect dust I don't want to hang my hat on the accomplishments of yesterday. Mm. Okay, very good. Last question. If you had to put your core purpose in life right now into a sentence or two, what would that sound like? Core purpose in life. The world needs more good human beings. <laughs> what can I do when I go to work that helps enable people to be a better human being. Mm. I like it, my friend. Carrie, thank you so much for being on the Riderflex podcast and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Steve, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Uh -huh.